In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Max Wardell. I'm hosting today with Carter Kowalczyk. And we actually have the pleasure of interviewing Greg Lehman today. Greg is really got a huge resume as far as education and clinical experience. He's got an interesting background as both a chiropractor and a physical therapist and a strength coach. And he was able to study under Stu McGill in biomechanics uh, around the spine. So we'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we even get into uh, some of the science, some of the things that you're doing with your course and stuff like that, Talk us through how you went from somebody who was an undergraduate in kinesiology to the point you're at now in terms of your educational path and then your path with uh, patient care. Oh, it's just like a tale of inefficiency, man. <laughs> no, no, no planning. That's what it was. I thought it was going to be a cop. I grew up in Thunder Bay and I went to, I did a phys ed degree because I wanted to be an RCMP officer. But okay. <laughs> so but then I started I did horrible in high school and then I started doing really well in university so I thought oh I should do something else uh, and then I just started loving biomechanics and and exercise biomechanics and exercise physiology uh, and then I got interested in the spine for some reason so I got lucky enough to get a scholarship to go wherever I wanted and then I I ended up going and and to Waterloo to work with uh, Professor McGill and I was like well what the hell but I thought I was going to be a, a chiropractor but I want I, I thought they're a bit messed up. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. no offense to half of the chiros I know, but the other half, they are messed up. Uh, so that's why I did my master's first. And then I went to Cairo school. So I'm four more years and I was teaching and researching at the same time. Then I was in clinical practice for like five years. And then I went back to school for physio, but physio is pretty easy. So I got to, I was still in practice full time when I went to physio school with a couple of babies at home. It was pretty juggling. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I've just been in clinical practice for the past uh, 10 years. So like 20 years of clinical practice with like education thrown in there. That's my inefficient uh, route. That's an interesting, wherever the hell I am. <laughs> that's an interesting pathway though, because there is some interprofessional competition between chiropractic and physiotherapy. And for everybody listening, if you're in the United States, we refer to it as physical therapy. Greg is in Canada here, and that's how they call it physiotherapy. I actually like physio a little more, but um, talk, talk about that a little bit, because going into PT school or physio school as a chiropractor, how was that? So it's really funny. So like uh, my, my master's was in spine manipulation and also a lot of exercise biomechanics stuff. So I was disabused and I had good friends who were doing their PhD in manipulation and they taught at the Cairo college. So I was disabused of all of the bullshit around chiropractic very early before I went. And, and the training in Toronto was also very rigorous. You, you didn't talk a lot. You didn't talk about the bullshit that's associated with chiropractic. Like we, 20 years ago, we were saying, you know, the pivots and PAMs that people, you know, you assess a joint, say if it's out of place and the SI joint isn't moving or stuck and upslip. That was taught at school in Cairo, but we were also sh shown the literature showing that it wasn't valid. So they had to teach you, but at the same time, they're saying, 
you can't feel this. You know, I mean, I remember a, a car that trained me in manipulating the back would be like, he'd crack both sides. They're like, why did, don't you decide where to crack it based on what you feel? He's like, ah, fuck it. What's good for the left is good for the right. You know, like, so, <laughs> and then, so it was very rigorous evidence-based wise. And then when I went to physio school, they were like, Greg, come show us how you how you specifically manipulate L2 on L3 and how you lock it from the bottom or the top and how you, how you assess what joint is stuck. And I'm like, you can't, you just roll them on their side and crack them. And maybe you'll get something. The, the dudes I did who did their PhD with me when I did my master's, that was their research. That was Kim Ross's stuff. That was 20 years ago where you couldn't be like, you can't be specific to what segment you want to manipulate. So it was pretty shocking when I went to physio school and they were teaching us the old outdated stuff that wasn't being taught at the Cairo school. That's interesting. Yeah, it was, it was really neat. So manipulation. Yeah. Whatever. When would you use or when would you apply some sort of high velocity technique? When would you really avoid it? And what would you avoid? So 20 years ago, we would just do it, you know, when we were drunk and we'd reach across the restaurant table and light up <laughs> someone's spine. But uh, like, it was so, we were nuts. Like I, you, we just taught ourselves. I did so many neck cracks in my second year, like at a bar, it was so bad. <laughs> don't, I don't, I'm not, don't, don't, I'm not condoning this. Don't do this. So now I never, yeah, no comment there. I never manipulate the neck anymore. I haven't manipulated a neck forever, like in more than 10 years. So, um, and as for the lumbar spine or thoracic spine, I'm all for it. Uh, I, I think, I think what gets, um, doesn't get enough credit is the three to five days of pain relief, especially in work with athletes. Like, uh, I know that manipulation won't be dramatically better than other interventions in the long term. Like that's, you know, for the most part, there's other things you could do, but there are, there's a subset of people not probably doesn't show up in research where they just feel dramatically better for three to five days. And, and if you have a, a game or you're training and you just want less pain, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So I'm, I'm a big, big supporter of it for the short-term things. Like I, I, I took a Tylenol the other day because I wanted to go skateboarding. And I was just really creaky and sore. I knew that I wouldn't, I'd feel better in two days, but I felt better, you know, when I took the Tylenol. So that's, that's where I think manipulation has a role and it, on almost all manual therapy for that short-term stuff. Yeah. Sure. As far as massage goes as well. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. A or T so, mulligan, all that stuff. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I just had a question. So you, you kind of said in the beginning, chiropractic, the, the profession is a little messed <laughs> up right now. I think you used where, you know, and, and I've, I've met some chiropractors who are doing great stuff and then yeah. some other ones who probably fit into that other side of it. You know, where, where does that start from? Is it, is it in the educational systems? Like why is there such a diverse? It, it's not, I, in Toronto, it's not the educational system. Let me give you an example. They, uh, uh, they started measuring their vaccine beliefs uh, in first year and then measured their vaccine beliefs in fourth year. And in, in, in the Cairo curriculum in Toronto, you have five immunology courses. They're very pro-vaccine. So they're telling everyone how important vaccine is. They've learned all, all the immunology and that stuff. And what they found was over the four years, there was there was hardly any vaccine hesitancy at the start, but in fourth year, and then this one group was like 30% or something like they had. So it's despite all the education. And so it's not the education. What happens is outdoor outside groups come in 
or outside training or the, the Cairo they know back home, I think that's what influences people. Like it's, they come in, it's, it's outside stuff. It's, it's not the, it's not the formal training. Interesting. Right. It's all these extra seminars you can take on like how to, how to have a thousand patient a week practice, you know, and all the bullshit things that you do and you take an x-ray and you have a whole sales team to point out all the shit and the stages of degeneration. It's, it's so fucking dodgy. Yeah. I hate it. You know, that's why I switch professions. <laughs> I listened to a video of you not too long ago, actually talking about uh, NEOA and where they looked at a group that was obese and a group that was not obese and then looked at activity levels and what was going to predict it. Was it going to be the group that had a ton of activity, a ton of wear and tear? Was it the group that was very sedentary? And the results were pretty interesting. I'll let you talk. Was that the uh, Voynier study? Do you remember what I was talking about? (laughs) It may may have been. Um, Probably it was, it was sort of the study there. They had a narrative, like it was just sort of called the U-shaped approach to like OA where too little is bad and too much is bad. Mm -hmm. And and sort of what they're saying was if, if you're obese and you take a lot of steps per day, you're more likely to develop OA and the disease will progress more. That's what they wanted to kept saying. Right. Um, but, but I'm like, that is such a shitty message. Like if you're overweight, you're told, well, because you have that load on your body, you shouldn't be active. You know, it's mm-hmm. what a horrible message. What are you supposed to do? And it's, and it's, and then when you looked at their data, they, that isn't what their data suggested. The data just suggests like it wasn't the steps or the activity per day that predisposed someone to NEOA. It was just the fact that you had a high BMI, meaning it's not, it's probably not the mechanical load that drives the sensitivity, the pain, and potentially the changes on the scan, right? And it wasn't even every part of the joint that had more wear and tear. It was just one specific part. So such an inconsistent, but they just focused on that and said, heavier you are and more steps you take, the more OA you get. And it's like, not most of the joint. And it was just BMI was the factor. Which right? is and interesting. Yeah, because it's not the load. We, we work with throwers and we were actually presenting some research today. And one of the questions was in regards to pitch counts and limiting the number of pitches that, that athletes throw. And the research is evolving and it's a little spotty in that we look at pitch counts over the course of a season, over the course of a week, or even over the course of a game, but there's very little research on inning to inning pitch counts. And what is a 45 pitch inning do in terms of workload compared to three 15 pitch innings with rest in between. So the research is lacking a little there. And I think it's, I think it's going to start coming along, but even, even in pitch counts, we have different recommendations depending on, on what you see. And in the end, it's like, well, how healthy are you? How are you moving? And if you're moving very well and you're very healthy, your pitch count totals can be very different from some, and then what are you doing? Like Carter was talking about. I mean, yeah. Like what are you doing the other six days a week when you're not playing a game or not yeah. playing on the weekend? You know, if the pitch counts are only monitoring and limiting game time situations, it's like, well, what about the kid who's got their dad taking him out into the backyard every night until he throws 50 strikes and he can't eat dinner, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, how are you going to monitor those kids? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's really neat. I like how you guys said, how healthy are you? That's such an important question when it comes to pain and injury. I'm glad you brought it up because it's a, it's a neat question to ask all the people you work with in pain, right? Cause it's this idea. If you stay in the pitch count world, that's the stressor on them. We know it might lead to some injury and pain, but there's such a huge variability in how people respond to that stressor. 
So one concept is like if the healthier or more robust the system is, the better it can it can tolerate that, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 I use that that model with people who are have ridiculous persistent pain and with athletes. It's the same principle, and where, where you just look at at pain as being multifactorial, and so is injury in some way. So there's all these other things that you can work on, and and I don't think a lot of kids or people put it together that. Uh, other factors besides just going to the gym and, and, and tr their training volume can help their injuries. But if you say, well, pain is so complex, you, you can optimize everything in your life and that might help you out as well. Interesting. Absolutely. And, and, but you have to sell it. That's the thing. You got to recognize how multifactorial pain and injury is. So telling someone, you know what, going for a walk and spending time with your friends is actually help healthy and helpful for your injury reduction. Like it's that, you know what I mean? It's that complicated sometimes. Like and giving your course, yourself a break. Your course is reconciling biomechanics and pain science. How do yeah. you reconcile? This is such a dynamical system or dynamic system. We have yeah. so many things that have so much interdependence uh, on each other, I guess. How do, you, how do you fit it into your explanation? But then also, how do you start to conceptualize some of the biopsychosocial stuff that we talk about with... I mean, you have an immense uh, knowledge in biomechanics. How do you start to synthesize those things? So it's, I'd say a few things you, you got to, so here, here's like an analogy or metaphor that might help. Like if you have a piece of cake and you love that piece of cake, right? Can you say what ingredient in it that was your favorite? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. not, it's more than its parts, right? And so pain and injury, they are, everything's interdependent, but you don't really know how they react right? You have, you have no idea. And you don't, when someone is injured, you don't know what is the most important thing to get them better because it, it is all an interrelationship. So what's kind of cool, like 15 years ago, I'd probably be more rigid in, in judging how other people treated someone because I would think, oh, this is how you get better. This is the right way. If you don't follow my philosophy, then you suck. And now when you're in practice for a while, you're like, look at all these different people who practice so different from me, but they're helping the same people, right? So what's going on there? And, and what it means is like, there's lots of roads to Rome and there's probably a lot of things that help, that help people recover, which to me means there's not just one thing that can help people, but pain is that complex. Does that, does that make sense? There's like lo yeah, lots no, of things that you can work on. Absolutely. They've, they, they preach, you know, in our physical therapy school, at least clinical, you know, clinical based practice, evidence-based practice, um, stuff like that. But I was talking to my brother, who's actually in a DO program down in South Carolina and their educational philosophy is a little different. He's like, yeah, they pretty much told us like, we don't necessarily know why everything works, but at the end of the day, if it works for that patient, like we're going to do it. If it makes that patient better, if it gets them closer to that goal, we're going to do it. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to, to do it. Like I, that's why I use the cup analogy for pain which is overly simplistic would be like you have all these stressors or potential contributors to pain that are in your cup. And when that cup overflows, you have pain. So your options for treatment are you can build a bigger cup or decrease what's in the cup. But what's where I like it is you can have like depression, anxiety, catastrophizing, high workload, all of these things, you know, maybe some tendinosis that's in the cup. You don't have to change all of those things. People can be depressed and anxious and ruminate and fearful, but, and that's hard to change. And you don't have to always, that's, that's, what's amazing. You could add something else 
like to, to build them up and they always have those things. So that, that's, what's cool about pain. And that, so that's how I work like with my patients or, or teaching people is like recognize the uncertainty, but that doesn't mean that uh, you can't help people. Right. And there's lots of ways to help people. And, and it's good for patients too, who, who are like, well, I've tried everything. And I'm like, well, you haven't tried everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, exactly. and, and that's, what's great. Like, and, and you know what, just because something didn't help you a year ago, you actually might be in a, your pain now is different than it was a year ago. You're, you're a different human, right? Your system's different. It, things you tried before might actually be helpful now, right? It's so, it's so, it's so, it's so cool. Like we should be more optimistic sometimes. When we look at like the, I guess, all the research that's basically showing, hey, you can get an MRI, you can have asymptomatic disc herniation, you can have asymptomatic slap tears, all these different things. And we look at baseball players relating it back to <laughs> what we see most commonly. You look at their, you look at the pro baseball players, studies say maybe 70% of them have some degree of labral degeneration, fraying, tearing, slap tears, yet they're out there playing pain-free. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing this all the time. This is kind of, I would say your area of expertise is talking about, okay, when we look at biomechanics and we look at, you know, tissue degeneration, pathological stress, and all these different things. And then we look at symptomology and what these patients are experiencing. How do you start to put together in the initial stages, some sort of plan or progression in terms of either your thinking or practically to get these people out of pain, knowing that that's the case. So if, if they have an MRI and there's a disc herniation and it might be pressing on a nerve root and it does correlate with some leg pain, I'm pretty comfortable saying to someone, this, this is a potential contributor. So we can work on this, but here's the thing with pain. It's, it's not just that, like that's your nociception. And you could look at pain as what do we do with that nociception? And that's why there's other things we can work on as well. And then I would even say, you know, and you know what, what's also possible is that herniation isn't even what's going on. Like that's not the, a, a source of irritation, but it doesn't matter because we're going to work on everything as well. Like we're building an organization here that's redundant. Like so there's l- lots of things that can help you out. So, so let's, let's do some stuff specifically for your spine that can be helpful. And then what are the other areas in your life and your life or potential com- contributors to pain? Do you think like, what else do you think is going on? And, you know, and that would take some education. We'd have to talk about pain. I usually give people like send people to my workbook, which is free online and like they can read about it. And then they come back with an idea of what they think, what else could be going on? You know, you do a full history. So it's like, we're, we're going to tackle this a number of different ways to, to help you out. It's, it's to me, I, like I'm not, I've heard people say they're sharpshooters when it comes to treatment. I'm not, I'm like, give me a shotgun. <laughs> like, or if I'm fishing, I'm not fishing with a pole. It's a, I'm dragging a net. Like I'm taking, it's belts. If you don't want your pants to fall down, wear belts and su- suspenders, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm doing and duct tape and put on some weight. Like, like, and so that's the idea. So I, a lot of my, work with patients is selling up them on this idea that pain is multifactorial and so can the interventions to help you out. So we, we cover all, does that make sense? So we cover all the bases. I'm never comfortable dismissing the tissue, even though I believe in the biopsychosocial because it's bio and psychosocial. Now within your, like within your scope of practice, how do you 
combat some of those psycho, you know, the mental aspect of maybe the pain they're dealing with, whatever you refer out to. No. So, so this is the thing, like it, if, if, if you, if you've made an, this is where I actually need to get better. And I think all of us do. It's like, people can have depression and anxiety. I'm not specifically treating that for sure. And so I'll, I'll recommend to them, like in conjunction with working with me, that okay. they, they could maybe see someone else. But in terms of like rumination, fear, anxiety, worry about like bending your spine or what this injury means, I can talk to them about that, explain that, well, this makes sense that you have pain. And sometimes just knowing that this makes sense, that it's not weird that they have pain and these factors contribute is helpful in and of itself. Right. But I still use, all my interventions are mechanical. You, you know, it's still about activity and movement and doing things they love again. And that, I think that's how we address fear and all those things. It's you, you prove to yourself that you're robust and strong. You can't just yeah. tell someone they are. So like, I'm still a physical therapist, right? right? I just recognize that there's other factors going on. What did your That's patient crazy. population look like? Sorry, sorry for interrupting you there, but what does so your patient population look like? It's weird now. So like, you know, years ago when I was in a more formal clinic, it was everything, you know, the sprained ankles, acute low back pain all over the place. And now it's like, um, you know, that I'm more popular, like whatever around the world, that sounds weird, but like I get people emailing me and I do a lot of Zoom consultations. And so now, now I was just, I was had a, on a podcast the other day. I think now my success rate has gone down because I'm getting like, there's definitely more people that I can't help, you know, cause it's more of a co complex, like or complicated, uh, uh issues coming going to you. On. Well, sometimes. Yeah yeah. 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 You're getting, you're getting the people that failed elsewhere. It sounds yeah, like, like I'd love to get some ankle sprains in here. That'd be <laughs> wicked. <laughs> Maybe a couple total knees, a couple ankle sprains. Yeah. Well, the, the closest I got was last year was uh, a Liz Frank fracture, you know? Okay. Yeah. And so I wanted to help. I got to help them. I was like, great. This is awesome. Let's just build them up. Six weeks later, they were great. Yeah. So, so I, I still like that. Actually, I try to get more, I want more people to come. I have a little gym. That's what my clinic is. I'm looking around it now, but I'd rather have people come and just work out with me. You need like the pressure's off. Then you can just focus on like performance and getting stronger, building up your, your butt muscle, whatever your happy goal happens to be. No judgment in this place. Like <laughs> now a Brett are you uh, cash based or are you? Yeah. Yeah. Cash? So, so the way Canada works, it's, um, it's not paid for by the government. Most like, except in the hospitals, uh, and people have insurance, but they just pay me and then I give them a receipt and they submit it to the insurance company. So that, I think huh. that's kind of, I don't know if that's what you guys do. Nope. No. Maybe we need to come to, Yeah. I don't know. Is there space? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have to come to Canada. There's a lot. If they have insurance, that's the thing. Otherwise yeah. people pay out of pocket. Well, it's all out of pocket. It's just whether, they're not, whether or not they get reimbursed. Yeah. And what we do with athletes is out of pocket primarily, unless they're actually in formal therapy. When they're in formal therapy, then it's, uh, you know, you're dealing with insurance companies and yeah, stuff okay. like that all the time. So, no, the reason I ask you that is just, um, I'm curious as to when you're dealing with more degenerated tissue, um, further degree of degeneration, OA, um, yeah. more complex patients, as you discussed, like that's what you're seeing now. How does your treatment vary between when you're seeing those 
those, uh, those athletes, those younger, those younger people that are going to heal up. Like it's, it's honestly the same. Like once you find your principles, right. The things that resonate with, with you, it's just, it's just grading them, scaling it. It, it, It's the same. Like if I have a, so I still work with a lot of pretty elite runners and, and stuff like that. So if, if their knee hurts with running, we're going to look at all of the potential stressors in their life and decide if we need to, what, what we can change. And then we're going to like, this is my, my principle for treatment is you calm shit down and you build shit back up. Like you just have these two buckets. So what needs to calm down? What needs to be built back up? Right. So that's what I look at. So with an elite athlete, it's the same thing. Right. Are, are there aggravators that, that we can address? Are there things in your life that we need to add to build and to teach, uh, to build up your coping and your tolerance? Now you can have a persistent pain person who's had, you know, low back pain for ages and it hurts all the time. Same idea. Like, what are the things that are that keep aggravating and sensitizing? Sometimes it's beliefs and worries and fears and not moving. And then what are they missing in their life? Like, what do we have to add? You know, and you realize they're not doing the things they love anymore. Well, what's stopping them from doing that? Right. Sometimes it's belief, but they're told, oh, if I, if I keep go, if I keep playing golf, my spine will, uh, my, my disc will pop out and I'll have uh, the worst pain ever. I'm like, do you love golf? I do love golf. I'm like, okay, well, let's start golfing again. <laughs> yeah. So it's the same thing. Like it, it, it sh- the principle should be the same. It's just, it's just the details that, that differ. The body's the body. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of our mentors model in terms of our corrective exercise program that we would take athletes through. It was scaled. Like you could spend a long time in the very first phase of the program because, Hey, maybe I'm not ready for these more advanced exercises, but the 13 year old kid that's coming in that Carter sees tomorrow is going to be doing the same thing as the college kid that I'm going to see tonight. It's just a a different level of, of exercise, different level of resistance. Um, maybe it's a little less stable, you know, they're on a, they're, they're in a lunge stance versus, Hey, half kneeling, something like that. But when we look at these corrective exercises, it's sometimes hard for people to conceptualize that these same sort of exercises, these same sort of strengthening exercises, whatever we're doing in the clinic are going to be the same things that we have our young kids doing in our more advanced elite level kids doing they have the same deficits they have the same they're human beings so i like the i like that you said that but then kind of moving that moving that forward i guess when when we talk about um you know some of the stuff in regards to mechanical load where do you where do you start someone that hey they just can't tolerate compressive load on their knee right now because they have ra or or whatever they're in a kind of a flare how do you, how do you get that patient to buy into actually doing something that maybe not as specific to their knee or to their ankle or wherever they're feeling, feeling symptoms? Yeah. So with, with, with something like that, like let's, let's say their, their knee is flared up. We, I, I often take the research route because that's what I feel comfortable with. I'm like, I know this seems weird, but we do know that strength training around your hip can help your knee. And, and if they're very mechanical, I might give them a potential mechanical uh, reason for it, but I can also give them like uh, sort of the, the, the brain of uh, reasoning. I mean, like it's, it's a bit, it's um, it's the descending modulation of not like that stuff, you know, with the mm-hmm. goods are released and all, all those things. So I'll give them a, f- a few reasons, but really just, it's one of those, 
I know it seems weird, but it does seem to help. <laughs> really simple explanations. There's nothing, nothing magical there. And then I say, and I say, what's kind of surprising too, even though you're working your hip, you are putting some stress on your knee, right? When you do these, these hip exercises or what I often do is sneak in hip ex or knee exercises by giving them calf raises when they lean against the wall and their knees slightly bent. And I call it a soleus exercise, but what are you doing at the knee when you're doing that? You're altering position, you're altering compressive load. You're, you're doing a ton of stuff. So you're loading up the knee, right? Yeah. But your focus is different. So you, you do stuff like that. But I usually try to find some activity still for the knee work. So the, the, here, the principle is like the body responds positively to stress. We just got to get the right dosage right now. So I know your knee hurts, but we still want to load it up. It seems odd. And, 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 and then people might not, re, it might not resonate with them, but I'm, I, I'm sure they have an uncle or an aunt who got a hip replacement. And what, what did they do the first day in the hospital? You know, they got up and walked. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you're sore in the morning, lying in bed, what do most people like to do? Like, you don't, it's sore when you first get up, but you walk around for 20 minutes, you feel better. Mm -hmm. Like the, like, and, and try to like find, so I'd find things in that patient's history that would support that idea as well. That a little bit of stress on a sensitive structure is actually the right thing to do. Cause they, actually, they may yeah, not know it. Stress reaction. Yeah. Right. They might not know it like, um, you know, consciously, but they might, they might know it like subconscious, unconscious, subconsciously. I don't know. One of those, uh, because they've experienced it, but you pointed out to them. That's interesting. I mean, really a lot of, I guess I've said that's interesting a lot, but a lot of what you're doing is very interesting because it's difficult to sometimes research pain science and it's difficult to kind of integrate that into what we've already known and what we're still finding out about biomechanics and tissue degeneration and, and how there's an interplay between what you eat and how you feel and, and, and what you think and what you feel. So it's, it can become almost a, uh, this monster for, for some people yeah. trying to tackle it in terms of education, obviously you have a course uh, we've plugged before, but where can people besides reconciling pain with biomechanics, um, pain science, with biomechanics, where can we start to kind of figure this out? I mean, clinical practice, obviously very, very important. So, um, the, the, the reason I wrote my book, the recovery strategies book, and the reason it's free is uh, because I want everyone to have it like that, that that's the best place to start. And, and it, it's, it's 71 pages, but it's really designed that uh, every page can be printed and be its own useful uh, infographic. Like I think the pages go together. And so it's really just like, because when you, if you read a lot of pain science, it's just, or I don't even go on Facebook to talk about pain anymore. Cause it's just a bloody mess. Like it's so complicated. There's all these neuroscientists involved. There's huge textbooks and I read it and I'm like, this doesn't help anyone, right? This is not, this is, this stuff isn't helpful. And so we just need principles. So that's why I wrote like the 10 key messages of pain and recovery. So you just start with, and, and some of them won't resonate with you, but some might, and you, you as a therapist, you might find your own key message. Like I love saying that, that we are adaptable and that we respond positively to stress. That's like a huge message for me. And then what you have to, and then what you do once you get those messages that resonate with you and your patients, that's how you can tailor your research reading. 
right? So I, I still look for, for research that supports that or even challenges that view to like make the message a little bit better. So that's why I talk about um, the weight loss. There's a weight loss paper with NeoWay where um, this, is, this is odd, but so um, patients who have NeoWay, they lose weight, right? Their BMI goes down. And, and what often happens, this is a bit of a surprise, is they end up putting more stress on their knee when they walk. Hmm. It's counterintuitive or intuitive, yeah, right? So the reason they do it is, is they walk faster and they walk more and they take they, you know, longer steps and all these things. So there's more, there's more load when they're walking. So then the researchers, Messier and Henriksen, those are the researchers here, they, they're like, oh no, are, are we going to increase the degeneration in these people? Right, because there's more stress yeah. on their knee. And so they followed them for 18 months. No, they had less pain and there was not more degeneration. It did the, the wear and tear idea wasn't well supported. And so it's this idea, again, like we respond positively to stress. You see it in runners. This is the work of Belavi, right? So like runners in general will have healthier discs and healthier knees than non-runners. So you're always looking like, so you have a, find a hypothesis, like a key message, and then that's how you like tailor your your reading and, and your pain science and all that stuff. Are you still doing any uh, research peer review? So I'm lucky now because I'll get like, I get to jump in as the third author on a paper and not do any heavy lifting, but I get to publish and, you know, just reread it or I get to come up with the idea and someone else does it. So I, I do stuff like that. That's but nothing. Nice. The closer, Nothing. like the closer in the bullpen. Sure, that's it. Yeah, really easy. <laughs> uh, I had one more question before we switch topics or not sure what Max had scheduled. Um, but Max talked about working on adjacent joints to address, you know, maybe the painful joint. Yeah. Um, what about when you're working with an athlete utilizing other sports? So maybe taking them out of the environment they're used to or comfortable in and putting them into something else. So an example I'll give you is like, a baseball hitter, if you got someone who was trying to learn how to hit, but they didn't know how to properly load into their hip, would you put them in tennis and work on like a forehand or something like that, just to kind of get them out of their environment, but teach biomechanics? Yeah. So I don't, so that's not a, that's, I'm not the right one to answer that okay. <laughs> because that's a performance question. That is kind of neat. I do like that idea. Like I, I do that with my, like I trampoline and do gymnastics and skateboarding. And I do like that concept of getting away from the skill you're working on, go do something else that's somewhat related and see if it carries over. Yeah. I think there's something there. I just don't know what the literature is, but yeah, I would do that for rehab. I'm totally, I think that's fantastic yeah. for rehab. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm all over that of, of training different, even though it's the same because people have less um, preconceived ideas and expectations of what they're doing. And then often there's no baggage associated with it. They just focus on the task and they feel better. And then you point out to them, you know, you just loaded the hell out of your spine. This used to exactly. hurt you. Yeah. With, with, with baseball athletes too, it can be tough. You know, they're not throwing a javelin or something that weighs more weight. They're throwing a five ounce baseball. So their body doesn't, they don't always sequence their body. Right. But if I have them, you know, do a medicine ball, a 15 pound medicine ball toss or throw it against the wall, you know, they will sequence their body. Right. So if, Oh, we need just about getting that low, getting that, that input into the system. Yeah. The young athletes, especially like a little proprioceptive feedback and a little bit of feeling that they're in a different position. 
And even with a lot of these guys that are injured, just, I mean, a lot of what I did was research in the cadaver lab, loading with different tensile loads, the elbow in different positions, different amount of flexion, pronation, supination, seeing where valgus loading, where the biggest gapping occurs, how many millimeters in this position versus this position. And what if I give it an, a higher impulse versus a more sustained strain on the, on the ligament and then seeing what happens when I sever and uh, cut the ligament and then, okay, now when the anterior bundles cut, what kind of gapping do we see in this position, in this position? And so we're utilizing that knowledge and altering athletes, throwing mechanics. But then at other times, it's like sometimes just getting the athlete to throw differently than what they've done in the past changes their symptoms, even though, hey, maybe maybe their arm sequence or their arm action wasn't that bad in the first place. And just getting, yeah. and, and there's different mechanical loading that takes place. But I mean, some of it is it has to be psychological and what they're preconceived notion is when I have a kid come in, uh, from high school around here, he's got an eight out of 10, uh, pain. He says, just playing catch throwing about 45, 50 miles an hour. We change his position of his arm. Two weeks later, he comes back and I actually just took a video. I haven't posted it yet, but two weeks later he comes back and it's a zero out of 10 and his mechanics are certainly more efficient. Um, but we haven't done a lot in terms of exercise. He's worked on his mechanics and now he's throwing in the game, zero out of 10 arm pain. Yeah, and he's awesome. having arm pain for like five, six months before that. So there's no doubt in my mind that, hey, this helped a little bit, getting him to sequence his arm action a little better, but something else is going on there. And that's always I, uh, the, the interesting stuff to me. I was in Switzerland three years ago, and I did a quick talk on uh, running biomechanics and gait retraining. And the, and the thesis was what you're saying. It's not, it, it certainly could be biomechanics and changing the load and the stress on the tissue. But there's something else going on because sometimes the, re the results are too quick and too much. Like in the gait retraining studies, they increase their vol they double the volume of running within two weeks and they've only increased their cadence of like their running cadence, like 10%. So the load is just a little bit less, mm -hmm. but the absolute load, because they've doubled the running vol volume is massive and people have less pain. Like there's something else going on when it comes to, to changing up how you run. So I love tweaking technique. Uh, not because I think there's in running, I don't know about throwing, but not because there's an ideal, but there's value in doing, I, I think there's value in variety. Yeah. Right? Variation. And that's what our motor learning research would, would tell us too. It's randomization, variation is the key to skill acquisition. A lot of times, especially in baseball, it's, it's so monotonous and I'm guessing similar in running, although I'm, I'm not a big runner, but so monotonous. It's like, you're just throwing the same way, same distance, especially if you're a pitcher. Yeah. But you know what I think happens? So people talk about adding variety in running and maybe they do this with throwing as well. But I think a coach through the years, good coaching, even 50 years ago, this is what I mean about principles. We haven't really changed anything in running biomechanics like and coaching in a hundred years, but maybe 50 years. Uh, a good coach would um, put in variety accidentally you have a session on the track then you have a, a long easy run in the trails and then you have a tempo where you run fast and you have drills and strides in there and then you have some other easy run where you run with your buddies in different shoes so by accident good training leads to variety in how some like to make, to break up the monotony and so i wonder if that if that happens with with kids and throwing especially if you're playing multiple positions and stuff like that I would think so. As they get older, though, I think that 
dissipates. Like I have high school kids that don't play another position. They play one sport. Uh. It's baseball and they throw 60 feet, six inches with a five and a half ounce ball from the same mound all winter on an indoor mound. And then they go oh, outside no. and they're throwing on the dirt mound and they're doing the exact same routine. Everything they don't play same. play around. Like I was going to ask you guys, can someone uh, stand on, on, on home plate and throw 300 feet like out to the wall? Who, um, what's the lowest you could throw the ball? <laughs> So oh, was, that's a good I was, question. I was always curious. Like, if you just was took a picture, how far will that ball go if it never goes above seven feet? Or, you know what I mean? Like, could you? I think Nolan Ryan said he could he could throw it 135 or 140 feet, but I'd have to refer to somebody. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're in a tunnel, if you're in a tunnel in a regular stadium, how high could the tunnel be, and you could hit the hit the wall out there? Right. What well, you ever do any pitching in your dorm there in yeah, college? I have a story uh, for that. In our dorm in college, I had a couple roommates, and we were—I forget why—you know—we were shut down for whatever reason. It might have been a holiday, and they thought it was a good idea to long toss in our hallway. You know, it was probably a good 140 feet. Okay. Yeah. 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 Hallway, and I don't know, maybe 12, 14 foot ceilings. And honestly, I was shocked. Nothing went wrong until they were bringing it in about five feet apart. And the guy went to just flip the ball. It flipped out of his hand, hit the sprinkler, and flooded the whole building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, t- I tell my guys, a lot of guys, depending on how they sequence their throw, for example, if I get a guy with a, a low elbow, and I see yeah. it time to time, I actually have a six-foot-eight pitcher who has a very low elbow. He doesn't acquire much external rotation in the throw. And interestingly, he's in because he started in therapy with a pars fracture, I think, L5 and he's having back pain during throwing. So we're working on his whole sequence of his throw and he's doing a little bit better. I've been working with him for about a week and a half, but he he had this low elbow position. So we talked about what he's doing in terms of throwing and he's throwing on this upward arc long toss and to throw it on that upward arc, you got to drop your elbow and throw. So we talked about throwing on a line and his his statement to me was like, "I, I could throw it about 200 240 on a line and I'm saying, well, Nolan Ryan couldn't do that. So uh, if you're throwing it 240 on a line, um, yeah. you shouldn't be pitching in high school right now. <laughs> so I gotta yeah. say, I'll call the scouts right now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll have to make some calls there. So um, anyway, to switch routes a little bit, we talked uh, briefly about education. Um, you went a very interesting educational route, and that's actually when I was – looking at some of your stuff when I first came across you maybe a year, two years ago. This is interesting. This guy's got something that's very different than, than everyone else in the field. What do you suggest? I mean, I guess, what do you suggest for, for newer, we're younger guys, where would we go with education? Where would we go with our, with our research? What, what can we do to cut a couple steps out? What have you learned along the way that, that some younger guys like us and, and maybe even older people who are, are looking to learn would, would go? Uh, maybe what you have learned from, you know, the inefficient path you took yeah. to get there, you know, do you recommend exploring it like that and it wasn't a bad thing or would you recommend getting more to the point? Yeah, get more to the point. Uh, you know what, right now, I think Twitter is really the best continuing education out there. There's, there's so many people that will talk to you and, and they ask questions of and the good people will take their time and answer if you're genuine in, in, in your questions. So it's good. Uh, and then I, I really recommend on like 
again, find your principles, ideas that you think are important for recovery, uh, and then go try to disprove them with research. Like go read everything on that topic, build a case for it, build a case against it, and, and really un understand the, the area. And then at the same time, be agnostic. No, like, because what you end up finding is so cool. Like, this is what I meant about many roads to Rome. People, you can see clinicians who see who seem very different, right? And you might even see think that there's animosity online because they are different philosophically. But then you look how they practice, and you're like, you guys are doing the same thing. You just don't realize it. You're like, you're you know, squabbling and having debates over the over the the you know the icing on the cake not the cake itself you don't realize that the cake is exactly a lot of cake references today i never don't mean that but it's like they're really the same but they're squabbling over these little things right so like try to find those common threads amongst good therapies what That's um, was my advice what was your uh you went to in toronto you went to uh pt school in toronto correct no no i was in kingston so it's queens kingston okay yeah I moved and then came back. Trying. So in yeah. Kingston, what was uh, the manual therapy approach that you guys were were big on, or the school was big on, or was it? Kind so of it's epic? they follow like the Canadian. There's like this what's called this orthopedic division in Canada, which kind of bothers me because they they put the pinnacle of orthopedic practice to be neck manipulation, like that's level five. Otherwise, you can't get this special designation. And I'm okay. like, that's just ridiculous. That's like the easiest thing is to crack a neck. And so uh, it's based on that. It's based on, and, and they're really good clinicians. And it's more than that. They do try to do a lot of other training, but you have to do that stuff in order to get the training. I know people who have dropped out of the training. So it's based, it's based on that. It's really, so that's the, it's the classic. It's, I think it's mostly, I, I, I think, cause I'm not taking it. I'm not, no way am I taking this program. It's sort of the, um, I think it's a lot of Maitland in that. It's a bit of everything. Maitland, okay. I think so. Yeah, so no, I'm we, not the expert. I would of, never take it. <laughs> we got a bit of Maitland, um, but we did a lot of like uh, the Norwegian system, like Kaltenborn. Evian. Yeah, Maitland. I, that's the first time I ever heard of that. Was in physio school. That's like the the big pivum stuff. I'm guessing where you guys. I know they're one of the. They're very big on uh, Maitland's pivum, right? I think. I don't know. Kaltenborn's interesting in that it has a, it has a little bit of a, a couple approaches. And then I guess Stanley Paris was, he was one of our, uh, actually the guy who was our research advisor on PT school. That was one of his mentors as well. And he mm -hmm. took the Kaltenborn Evian stuff. He took the Maitland stuff and maybe a little bit of Mulligan, but mainly those two. And we, so we get a lot, a lot of, we've learned all these very specific things and we've had <laughs> interesting, interesting discussions on those. And Hey, sometimes it'll, it'll be the right thing, I guess, for, for somebody is, Hey, let's, let's try to do some technique that we learned in there. But, um, we just saw some research presented today, um, with thoracolumbar kyphosis and looking at some generalized, uh, mobilizations to the lumbar spine and to the thoracic spine and, yeah, the degree of change. And so I think the next piece of research <laughs> there is going to be comparing specific technique at whatever segment was found to be uh, hypomobile and then comparing that to the, uh, the generalized uh, thoracic and lumbar mobilizations. And then they should compare it to like a, the thumper or the vibro percussor things. Oh, the percussor. You need to have that totally. 
you need yeah. to have a control group like that. I'm actually, if, if I was often get asked like what I would recommend manual therapy wise, the, the group I'm most impressed with is the Mulligan group, the mobilization with movement. Mm-hmm. They've, they had a hypothesis 30 years ago. They don't really buy into it too much now, like a joint set of place realigning it. And they're always challenging themselves. It's a, and it's super simple and you can, you can teach yourself the basics online on YouTube, probably take their courses as well to get a few more basics. They're really good at like, we don't know, try this, see how it goes. This has been helpful for me. What do you think? I I've been really impressed with them through, through the years. Yeah. We'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's really, really. And it's nice too. Cause when it clicks, it's, it, it's, it's classics. I wrote a paper on this about symptom modification is the thing that, um, is the common thread between so many therapies. So Mulligan is like, okay, show me what hurts. Okay. It hurts to do that. All right, let's try to do it this way. And you use something in your hands that feel better. Yes. Okay. Let's keep doing it. You know, that's simple. <laughs> simple. If it's yeah. Scary, and, move it. <laughs> yeah. And, and like McKenzie and MDT is a similar idea. It's like, okay, it hurts to do this. Let's say it's flexion. Let's find the motion that feels better. The directional preference. Okay. Do lots of those is the thing that hurts. The thing, the thing that hurt, does that feel better? Yeah. Okay. We'll do more of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, a neurodynamic technique hurts to do this feels better to do that. Okay. Do more of that. It's, it's almost been bastardized, <laughs> at least from where we come from though, because of how much they simplify, you know, if it hurts, don't do it and move a different way. It's almost like the PT realm wants to overcomplicate everything and say, you know, you got to get down to the specific double locking yeah. methods and everything else like that. It's, it's really not. No, no, no. And that's, what's so cool. Like when I was a student cracking backs, I had way more techniques than I have now. And every therapist I know has been around same thing. You just few ideas. And so I, that's why I'm always open to looking at how other people practice and be like, Oh, you know what? That's a symptom modifier. I could do more of like I'm reading. I'm, I'm actually reading McKenzie's textbook from 1983 right now. Okay. Yeah. Just to see, like, honestly, these principles are are there like, or or once you have your own principles, you can look at some other, someone else's techniques and say, I don't buy into your principles, but I can see how your particulars would work with what I like to do. So you just, how has their system changed? Because we're not educated too much in McKenzie and basically Uh, we've observed it, but in the clinic and we've observed it with people, but so I, I taught a course once in Montreal with a bunch of like fellowship MDT McKenzie people and they were fantastic. So there's a, they classically it was all about the disc, you know, and, and all of that stuff. Um, now there's a subset who they know it's not all about the disc, but they still think there's lots of clinical utility in it. So, so they're much more comfortable saying we, we don't know why it's helpful, but that's okay. We're, we're working on this. And then a good MDT person will recognize that sometimes McKenzie and directional preference and repeated motions and all that stuff, you know, it's the wrong thing. So they develop skills somewhere else. Like it's, a, from what I've heard, it's really excellent the training at like clinical reasoning and all of that. So, so, so that's how it's changed. They're not wedded to the disc anymore. Yeah. And that's kind of what, I mean, that's kind of what we've yeah. learned about it is a lot of the disc disc related biomechanics related uh i guess system and mckenzie yeah so it's it's interesting to hear that it's changing it's kind of cool yeah but but remember it could be the disc sometimes right like the 
you know, there is some, some research where uh, flexion will cause the annulus to the material to move posteriorly. And there's some research where sometimes, this is McGill's work with Joan Scannell, extension will cause the material to move anteriorly, right? And sometimes, you know, nociception is important. Like that's, if you put pressure on something, it hurts, <laughs> especially if it's chemically sensitized. So, you know, there, I, I, I wouldn't say the disc is fully irrelevant, but they just know that it's more than that. Great, right? It's one thing in the cup. So a uh, couple things before we uh, wind down here. What is something that you would really want to leave clinicians with who are listening to this podcast, or even if there's some, uh, some people who are aspiring clinicians or, or on the pathway to what, what's one thing you'd leave them with that you've learned along your journey through these various educational routes? Uh, the big one, like there's two that's related is uh, it's okay to be uncertain. And when people say that they're so certain they have all the answers, well, they're just lying to themselves or they just don't know enough <laughs> to know that they should be uncertain. <laughs> That's like the big one. And then, and then like, this is why, although I primarily uh, teach and I treat a lot less, I still treat patients so that it keeps me humble because there's lots of like, there's a lot of people you're not going to help. Right. So, and then be open to sending them to someone else. Don't, don't get your ego in the way. Like, it's just, you're, you're not the right person at the right time for whatever reason. And, and that's okay. Like it, it's hard. Treating pain and injuries is hard sometimes, right? You're, you're not a failure to like, stop going on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook where people just show all their successes because that's bullshit. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this question, but I've been very curious. And when, I messaged you on Twitter to join us on a podcast. Figured this is the perfect guy to ask. So you may not be able to give me an answer for this, but baseball player with back pain comes yeah. to us, high school kid, looking at him, I'm like, this doesn't look right. I had him take his shoes off and he's sitting like way off. So I said, you, his, you pelvis. Guys, his pelvis is tilted. way off. Okay. He's way tilted. Yeah. So I put him on his back and I'm looking, I'm like, your femur looks long. And I'm like, your tibia might be long too. He actually went to um, one of the local orthopods that we work with, works with a bunch of baseball players. They took full standing radiograph, plain film, quarter inch uh, femur. Uh, I guess the right side was a quarter inch longer than the left. And then the left tibia was also uh, or eighth inch short. Yeah. So big obliquity big kind of asymmetry side to side responded pretty well we did some traction hey that that helps but interestingly rotating to the right throwing not any significant amount of back pain once we actually got him out of uh, a little bit of flexion early in the throw couldn't run without pain we could only run in circles <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't swing without pain. He was actually rotating to the left because he would hit opposite okay. uh, throw. We, we did a bunch of exercises. He probably went down in pain from maybe a six out of 10 was what he told us on eval to like a three. Then yeah. went to a Cairo in the area, works with a bunch of athletes, bunch of Olympic athletes. He did a rotational manip to his lumbar spine. Hasn't had pain since. It's been like a month and a half. 
Yeah. Any explanation? For no, that? no, like, no, none. Like, no, none. That, that's why like pain is that complex. Sometimes you just crack in the back. That's why I love it for the short-term stuff, giving it a try. You have to be open to that stuff. And I bet other techniques would have done the same thing as well. Uh, you know, like I had, a, yeah, that happens. And what you guys did was, was cool. You, you found the aggravating stuff, you avoided for a little bit, built them back up. And then you did some symptom modifying stuff, which is the back crack. It could have been the thumper or the vibro percussor thing. Mm -hmm. And there he's, he's fine on his own. And, and, and so what I would, what I would stress was to him is like, listen, that Cairo didn't put anything in place. Your legs are still longer than the other one. There's still discrepancy, but you have no pain. So you, you can adapt to this, to this change, to this, this asymmetry. That's what he should learn from that. Not Especially that his back went out of place. Like yeah. And, I, and maybe he grew a lot in the past few years. So he's not used to the asymmetry. Right. And it just, it'll just take him time to get comfortable with it. Cause we know we can have these asymmetries, especially when you look at the Paralympics, right. Mm -hmm. it's, sometimes it's induced. Right? right. And they're high performance. Like we're that's that. So that, that goes back to the principle. Once the principle here is we respond positively to stress, we can adapt. Right. And then the related one pain's fucking weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and like it's multidimensional and we should be open to a lot of things, help them with symptom modifiers, like to help modify symptoms. I love your That's approach with the maxims and with the principles, breaking it down to principles and then kind of expanding and deriving from there. I love yeah. That. So find your principles. And then, and then where you get better is like how you apply them because maybe you have a principle and we have like, and this is, I'm speaking to myself, I have to get better at applying it to different people, right? So th that's where technique comes in. Like, what's the right way to do this? What's the right way to frame it, you know? Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the pod. Um, reached out to you on Twitter and came right on. So this was, this was awesome. Oh yeah, I'm easy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Sometimes scheduling people, it's like, okay, they're getting back then you're getting back. And I had technical problems last week with Wi-Fi. So no, thank you very much for coming on. This is very insightful for people. Where can people reach you, read your blogs, find your course? Uh, oh yeah. My, uh, <laughs> my blog is uh, greglayman.ca and that's where the, the book is, the recovery strategies. Uh, um, there's some typos. I don't want any emails telling me about how, how many typos there are. <laughs> we're, we're clinicians. We're, we're clinicians, not copy editors. It's free. Yeah. How can people complain? Oh my God. I had this French person write me and say how unprofessional it was and all these things about the book. And I just wrote back, GFY. <laughs> I, I like Switzerland better. <laughs> I like Switzerland. It was, it was shocking to me. Anyways, uh, uh, so Greg Lehman and Greg Lehman uh, on Twitter as well. I'd say my Instagram, which is Greg Lehman, but that's just me like skateboarding and doing gymnastics. <laughs> it's not, not, there's a little bit of clinical stuff, but. <laughs> and I will you know, say everybody needs to go on and follow him on uh, Twitter because there's always some interesting stuff on there. Interesting conversations. I just saw the other day, you get, you said you gave this presentation to all these uh, MDs and then you had a DO ripping you. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, funny. Being a Cairo with no, <laughs> so no investigation weird. of who you were and the research you've done. So I forgot it'll be that. entertaining if you follow Greg on Twitter to say the least. Yeah, I think that guy kind of backed down a bit later. He's a bit more friendly and open. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah so 
That's the internet for you, though. But yeah. I'm Max Wardell in the name of Overhead Athletics. Carter Kowalczyk, signing off.